Uh, Luke chapter 19. So grab a Bible and, and head that way. And if you remember last week, uh, we saw Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And today, uh, Jesus continues his journey to the cross as he approaches uh, the temple. And we're going to see things change a little bit here. Um, this is really uh, what is called in church history, there's a, a name for the events that happened from this to, to the end, to the crucifixion, uh, and that's called Passion Week. You ever heard the term Passion Week? Um, it's called that because the English word passion comes from this Latin word, which I probably can't pronounce right. Some of y'all probably could, but I can't. Uh, that means suffering. Uh, and in, these days, in the days ahead, we're going to see our Lord Jesus suffer. We're going to see him suffer to his very core. And so when people use that phrase, the passion of the Christ, they're talking about his suffering, they're talking about his trial, they're talking about the beating he receives, his crucifixion, they're talking about him being forsaken as he dies upon the cross. Uh, but all that's later. We're not going to get to the suffering so much today. Today, uh, in, in Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, in, in Jesus, we are going to see the heart of God revealed to us uh, in a way that if you're just reading through the scriptures, you might miss it here. Now, before we do actually get to it and read it, I did want to just prepare us for it a little bit um, in this way. Our, our children, like most everyone in our culture, tell me if you don't think this is the case, but often speak in terms of how they feel. I feel this way, I feel that way. I, I feel like I always have to do the dishes, and all three of them might feel that, even though they don't all do it all the time. I feel like my teacher doesn't like me. I feel like my friend is mad at me right now. And in these moments, we often use this uh, kind of a family proverb of, of some sort uh, in that moment to say, don't trust your feelings. <clears throat> and because our children are all punks, uh, at times when they hear this, you know, we'll hear them actually using this phrase completely out of context. Uh, something along the lines of, you know, I, one says, I feel cold, and the other one's like, well, don't trust your feelings. No, that's not it. But in the proper context, uh, we'll, we'll tell them, don't trust your feelings. And we'll do this because since the fall, sin has stained everything, including our feelings. And thus, feelings are not an accurate metric for what reality is. You, you might say you feel alone, that you feel ugly, that you feel unlovable, that you feel that God is distant from you. Uh, or something like that. You, you feel that something you did has ruined your life. Do not trust your feelings. But also, in, in, in this group, we probably need to go the other direction a little, right? Don't, don't make the opposite mistake of believing that feelings and emotions are evil and to be squashed down and crushed and removed from all existence in the history of the world. Feelings are not evil. Uh, emotions were given to us in God's good design. They are part of God's good design. Sure, they're affected by the fall, just like everything else, but emotions themselves are not the result of the fall. They existed in the garden, and the, and the proof of that is not actually found in the Garden of Eden. It's not actually found in the, the early chapters of Genesis, rather. They're, they're found in the 19th chapter of Luke, the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. As we look, and, and we're going to see our Lord moved by two very strong emotions, sorrow and anger. Uh, so we're going to read it in three sections today. We'll read one, look at it, read the next one, look at it, and so on. Uh, you know how that works. So uh, Luke 19, let's just read it. Luke 19, we are beginning in verse 41. Follow along as I read aloud. He at the beginning is Jesus. 
And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. We're going to stop right there with the first section. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in these three moments in our Lord's earthly ministry, we are looking at today, we, we, we see Jesus' sorrow. Later we're going to see his anger and we're going to see him push back when the Pharisees question his authority. And Lord, we ask that you'd enlighten our minds this morning as we seek to understand these passages, to learn from these passages in your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're going to start with a little bit of time travel. Unfortunately, you won't be using a DeLorean. I just want you to turn backwards to chapter 13 in the Gospel of Luke. It should just be a few pages. Um, Luke 13, verse 34. And what's going on here, just as a bit of a reminder in this section, Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees who want to scare him so that he won't go to Jerusalem, so that he'll quit and just kind of go away. And after telling them, you know what, I must go there, that's where I must go, uh, I want you to see what Jesus says in Luke 13, verse 34. Uh, And here he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, And you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We've seen a lot happen since chapter 13 as he's journeyed all over the place, but on the way to Jerusalem. Uh, And now turn back to chapter 19, back to 1985, if you will. Do you remember what the people just last week were saying, right? As they entered the city, look at verse 38. You're going to see it right there. Verse 38, they are shouting with joy, blessed is the king, right? Blessed is he. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Jesus was talking about in chapter 13, this moment. That's that's still being shouted. I I don't want you to think because a week for us has passed since we looked at this, Uh, That all that's done, it's it's a reset, new scene kind of thing. That's still the end of it. We don't know if he's still on the donkey, if he's gotten off and he's walking at this point. But he's still going to Jerusalem. And and Jesus' response is quite different from the jubilation of the crowd that's going on around him. Jesus begins weeping. Weeping. Because he knows that these people, this the people of the city as he approaches them, he knows that, that they are going to overwhelmingly reject him, and thus they are going to overwhelmingly reject the salvation that he brings, the only hope of salvation. And so Jesus is weeping because he has the heart of God, and in his heart is broken for his people. Now, I don't get the impression that, that Jesus is a weak man. Right? He, he's not constantly blubbering all the time and someone tells him a story and he just breaks down all the time crying, right? But, but he cries here and he shows his emotion and he weeps for, for what breaks his heart. There, there's one other instance of, of Jesus praying or weeping in the, in the Gospels. You 
remember what it is by chance. You, most people, this is when you, when you go into scripture memory, this is the verse that everyone's like, let's start there. This one I can memorize. It's John eleven thirty five. If that didn't tip you off, anyone remember what it says? Jesus wept. See, if you're new and you haven't tried it, you've just memorized your first verse. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And what's occurring at the moment when Jesus wept uh, is that his friend Lazarus has just died. Well, died a few days earlier, actually. And, and he shows up and he sees the grief that's going on with his sisters. And he feels his own grief at the loss of this man that he knows. And, and in our passage, as, you know, and so he's just crying because of that. He, he understands that grief. And now, in our passage, Jesus weeps, or when he weeps, he says this. He says, would that you, talking about Jerusalem, you know, giving it personality sense. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And now they are hidden from your eyes. What, what he means is, is this. He, he desires for the people to, to know Jesus, to know him, to know that he is the only one who can create peace between God and, and sinners, right? The only one who can make peace between Jerusalem and the people who dwell in Jerusalem, uh, between God who is holy and sinners who are not. And it breaks his heart that they, they cannot see him as he truly is. It breaks his heart that they do not have eyes to, to put their trust in Jesus and, and thus see their souls redeemed. That's why Jesus weeps. So what is this teach us? What do we learn here, even about God? And the first thing here is this. As strange as it might sound to us, it teaches us that our, our Lord is, is filled with tender compassion for sinners. Th that's how he feels for them. Now think about it. Jesus knows the character of the citizens of Jerusalem. He's not ignorant thinking, oh, these are some really fantastic people, I bet. He knows their vices. He knows the savagery of their words and their action. He knows their self-righteous and prideful hearts. He knows their lust and greed and corruption and hate. He knows all their hidden sins. He knows this. Jesus even knows their stubbornness and rebellion against the truth that he speaks, that he brings, that he is. And Jesus knows that in the coming days they will reject him. They will hate him. They will cry out for his crucifixion upon the cross like a criminal. Jesus knows all that, all the worst things you can possibly know about people. And still, he doesn't bitterly despise them. Right? He doesn't spit on Jerusalem, done with you, hate you. Instead, Jesus sympathetically pitied them. Our Lord is, is compassionate. He cares for souls. This is not to say that Jesus loved them in the same way that he loves those he redeemed, but our Lord even cares for those who do not believe him, who absolutely reject him, who do not love him. And it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart to see them reject the only hope of salvation they have. And, and today, Jesus still weeps for men and women and children who in our day are in their sin and reject the Savior. You can believe that. So here's what it means for us, right? That's a reality that we learn about our Savior. Here's what it means for us. You, you and I have not truly understood the heart of our Savior for the loss if we do not feel a similar concern for the souls of those who we know, those who are in our lives, who are unconverted, those who need Jesus. I mean, honestly, what, what about you? Do, do you weep for the people you know who are spiritually blind, who lack faith in Jesus? 
Seriously, though, I, I look back at my life and think, have you, have you wept for the soul of anyone ever? A parent, a child, a close friend, someone who's recently passed away? You know, anyone who's just apathetically rejected the grace that's offered to us in the gospel? Why, why aren't we moved more often? I really I spent some time thinking about that. Why are we not moved by that more often? And, and the things that came to mind is, is either this. We do not believe Jesus when he says that eternal condemnation, hell, will come to all those who do not find their salvation in him. We, we simply don't believe it. Or we do not love others. Now, I'll say this as, as well. One of the reasons, among many reasons, I believe social media and mass media are unhealthy for us is, is that they constantly are throwing at us the, these worst things in the world. Every disaster, every horrible thing that could possibly happen. One after another, after another, after another. And, and what the research is showing is, is that it's made us numb to suffering. Such that when we see suffering right in front of us, we're emotionally unaffected by it. I've seen 10 things worse today. Your life's fine. We, we just, we're just numb to it. It's nothing to us. You know, uh, we're, we've, we've overwhelmingly lost the ability to feel sorrow or compassion for another human being. And, and I'm talking about we in the church. We still know what we're, we're supposed to care, right? We know the right things to say, like, that's really tough, that stinks. You know, whatever it might be, we know all the right ways to respond, but, but, but emotionally, do we, do we feel the compassion, the real care? And this spills over to how we are indifferent for the souls of our neighbors. Christians, don't let this happen to you. Lean into it, feel the sorrow. That's a very motivating thing within us. If we can understand the, to, to pity those who de- desperately need Jesus. Now in verse 43 and 44, just to explain that so you understand it historically, uh, this describes the siege and destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to happen out of, what, roughly 40 years later, AD, uh, 70 AD. It's going to be in response to this. The, the Jews uh, are revolting against the Romans and as you can imagine, the Romans don't appreciate the revolt, and so they come in and they destroy the city. They raise it, um, taking it apart, they, including the temple. And, and Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, Trinity knows <clears throat> that the temple will be destroyed. In fact, as the second person of the Trinity, he ordained its destruction as justice for the rejection of the Messiah. And, and yet it breaks his heart to know this is what's going to happen. And the last line of verse 34 says that, this was all done because you did not know the, the time of your visitation, which tells us this, that religious ignorance can be and is actually sinful and blameworthy. In other words, I, I just didn't know is not going to be an excuse, just like anyone who's had someone under you saying they don't know when they really should have known, right? Um, we could unpack that greatly, but for the sake of getting out of here at some point today, uh, we're going to move on to our second section, which begins in, in verse 45. I'm just going to begin reading it. Follow along, if you will. <clears throat> Speaking of Jesus again, it says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Uh, the chief priest and the scribe... Oh, that's the next section. We'll get there. Um, 
Um, it, it's important that we understand this passage. It really is. It's often a, a misunderstood passage. Um, you know, we want to understand why does Jesus become so angry here? We don't see Jesus angry very often, but we do here. Uh, when we were at uh, a church, in, our church in Kansas City, there was a woman there, a sweet woman from Mexico. Her name was Amada. Uh, she was new to the faith. She was, uh, like I said, from Mexico. And she sold these wonderful, the greatest homemade tamales I've ever had in my life uh, to help provide for herself and her, her children. Uh, Laura had ordered some of those tamales at one point, and she was going to get those tamales before or after worship on, on that Sunday uh, and exchange the money, and, and that was going to happen. And, and at one point, she shared this with this, this group of women as a way of, hey, we could, we could support her this way. What if we shared this information with some other people? And one of the women uh, condemningly said to Laura something along the lines of this, God's going to strike you down with lightning for doing business in his house. You can imagine the rest of the conversation was a little weird at that point. Uh, it's hard to recover from that one. Uh, <clears throat> this woman misunderstood this passage. This is what she was re- referencing. Now, now, let's seek to understand what it, what's really going on here. And so, first of all, uh, you need to understand this is actually a fulfillment of a prophecy that begins, right? Back uh, in ancient prophecy, in Malachi 3.1, uh, the prophet says this, that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That prophecy is fulfilled, right? This is Jesus suddenly coming to his temple. Now, we've got to also understand kind of where the temple fits into the life of of Jewish people. It is the absolute central focus of worship for the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people in Jerusalem, but Jewish people anywhere. Uh, And and because of this, right, and and the reason is that God had promised, this is the place where I will come and I will meet with my people, and and that's how they understood it. And so every year, there were tens of thousands of people who would travel from far away places to visit the temple, to make sacrifices in the temple, and and when they... When they go into worship, like we talked about last week or the week before, they, they need these unblemished animals, right? That never been used, have no, no, nothing wrong with them for the sacrifices. <clears throat> they also needed local currency so that they could pay the temple tax, which is nothing crazy. It's just a, a tax that helped them upkeep the temple. Someone to clean walls and clean up blood from sacrifice. You know, all the things that were needed in the temple. Now, to, to help with this, some began these businesses where they would sell sheep to the pilgrims so they could have them, and they were somewhere near the temple, or they'd sell birds or sheep, you know, whatever you needed uh, for the sacrifices. And others set up these temples that would take their foreign money and give them local money that they could use for the temple tax. All this is very helpful for pilgrims nearby, outside the temple, separate from it. However, at some point, the, the priests and the leaders for personal financial gain provided space actually within the temple, temple itself uh, for these sales and these services. And, and the people running them with the blessing of the priest uh, began to price gorge the pilgrims who were coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. See, that is a... Uh, after disasters in our country, I don't know if you know this, this was new to me when I was talking to some family in Houston, there are actually laws that forbid people, companies, individuals from doing price gouging. It is against the law to, to charge an exceedingly amount more than what something is worth in those moments. Uh, after the flooding in, in Houston, everyone lost their drywall, or just about everyone lost their drywall. Home Depot was not allowed to sell the drywall for 10 times more and take advantage of, of, of just how desperate the people were for it. Uh, even though they could have made a killing off of it. They could have done it. People would have paid it. But, but here are the priests, right? These are the people that have been trusted by God for the care of his people, to, to lead the worship, to provide for this. They are becoming wealthy by taking advantage of those who are under their care. 
And most of them were, were poor people from a long distance away. E even our secular world, by our, our laws here in this country, acknowledge that price gouging is wrong. And, and here are the, the leaders of the, the temple doing this very thing. And, and this greedy-hearted corruption is what Jesus observes when he enters the temple, a place that's supposed to be a holy place of worship. And remember, Jesus has this consuming passion for the reverent worship of God. And, and he walks in, and this is what he sees. And, and Jesus feels angry about it. He is angry about it. Here in Luke's gospel, we're told only that Jesus is driving out these corrupt merchants. They didn't sell the full picture. In fact, this is mentioned in all the other gospels as well. And in Matthew's gospel, we learn that Jesus goes Bobby Knight and is throwing chairs as he's in there, that he flips over the tables that are in there. We learn in Mark uh, that Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything to the temple. He just shuts down that part of it. We learn in John that he actually gets a hold of a whip somewhere in there, and he's using it to, to drive out the animals along with the people who have been doing the, uh, the selling of these animals at extreme prices. He dumps the coins out. It, he goes, uh, it, it's this huge scene. In fact, if phones existed with cameras on them at a time, this would have been one of those events that goes viral, and everyone's like, look at this guy, you know, it probably would have been termed like going temple from that day forward uh, anytime someone got upset about something in this way. Now, now, now Jesus gives a specific reason for his angry actions and feelings in, in verse 46. Look at it. He says, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, we're going to break it up into two things. The, the, each part of that comes from a different part in the Old Testament. The first one's from Isaiah 56, 7. Uh, which promises this, right? This is an Old Testament promise to Gentile foreigners, people from far away, uh, and, and it's this. It says that the temple shall be called a house of prayer, and here's the rest of the quote, for all peoples. That's the whole quote. But, but instead of being a house of prayer for all peoples, it has become a house of unjust commerce where, where, where those who have traveled a great distance to worship the Lord are now being taken advantage of. The second half of this statement, when Jesus says, but you have made it a, a den of robbers, uh, it's a quote from a prophet, the prophet Jeremiah in the book of Jeremiah. It's this well-known sermon that Jeremiah actually preaches at, at the gates right here at this very temple uh, years and years and years before. And, and Jeremiah is proclaiming God's word, right? He's speaking for the Lord and he says this, has this my house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? In Jeremiah's day, the people were robbing God by neglecting the poor, neglecting the widows, neglecting the orphans, and, and then pretending like they did nothing wrong. They would show up at the temple and they'd worship and just, what? What did, we, what did I do? Nothing, right? They're completely innocent. And they're not. Now, Jeremiah and, and Jesus are both saying that, that people have made the temple a gathering place of criminals as, as people rob the poor in order to make themselves wealthy. And we still see this sort of thing today. One of the most blatant and obvious ways we see it in, in our faith today is, is with the health and the wealth preachers in our time. We see it with many of the televangelists on TV who, who have these empty promises of if you give your money, God will repay you with massive amounts of money in response, and, and thereby they convince people who are incredibly poor to begin with to don donate what little money they have just so that they can get rich themselves. Now, what about other settings? What about selling anything in, in a church setting? 
Um, how many of you thought of like, we have t-shirts for sale back there on that back table, right? You're just scratching, you're not raising your hand. Um, right? Is, is it okay to sell t-shirts in here? And, and I really, would, would, would Jesus come in and just flip over the table and t-shirts would go flying everywhere and if this were that moment, right? And I, I don't believe so since the, the shirts aren't necessary for worship like the animals and the, and the, and the money here were. No, no one's ever going to be turned away from here because you don't have a Manhattan Press shirt. Uh, you just won't be. And, and actually, uh, we don't make any money off those shirts. We actually lose money every time we sell one. And also because if you can't afford one, just take one. You can have it. That's okay. Uh, it, it's not the exchange of money that Jesus is angry at. It's, it's the heart of worship that is being tainted. It's, it's the heart of worship is being destroyed as, as the poor were being taken advantage of in here and all for the individual gain of those in charge. Now, the Wareham, the building we're in, it's, it's not a temple. But we do wish for this to be a house of prayer on Sunday mornings and other times. Uh, we ask for this to be a, a house of, of reverent worship that honors the Lord. Okay, so earlier we saw the emotions of sorrow in our Lord, and it led to his weeping. Here we see the emotion of anger in our Lord, and it's led to his wrath being poured out on those before him. Does this surprise you? How, how many of you find that, you probably won't admit to this, but do you get the sense, like the sorrow, that makes sense. That fits with kind of how I picture Jesus, but the anger and uh, going temple on these people, I don't know what to do with that. Is that a little tougher to make sense of? Um, it, it might, because I think we've assumed that all anger is sin. You probably heard Rodney talk about this. This is one of his big themes. Do, do you know what it, what it means for us here to, to see Jesus, the only sinless man in the history of the world, get angry and be angry and act angry? Do you know what this means? It, it means there is a way to be angry and for that anger to be holy. Not sinful, but holy. And in fact, we learn exactly what Dane Ortlund wrote, right? If you remember in the, I don't know if you look at the reflection quotes, hopefully you do, but if you see him there, he says this, a morally perfect human such as Christ would be a contradiction if he didn't get angry. Like it's necessary. He wrote that in his book, Gentle and Lowly, and one of the illustrations he gives us to help you understand that even outside of the temple context is this. He says, it's the father who loves his daughter most, whose anger rises most fiercely when she is mistreated. See, if the father failed to do that, it wouldn't show like, oh, what a holy guy you are. You failed to understand wrong. You failed to respond to it in the way you should in this moment. It should make us angry when we see people wrongly mistreated, when we see people taken advantage of. That should make us angry. It should make us angry when we, when we see the worship of God turned into some entertainment spectacle or when we see it into a money-making scheme. That, that sort of anger is, is what's, what's generally just referred to as righteous anger. You put that qualifier on it. This is righteous anger. It's, it's quite different from most of the anger we feel throughout our day, which, which I think is why we tend to think angry is all bad, anger is all bad. We, we are typically angry because, you know, something doesn't go the way I want it to go, or um, someone doesn't act the way or simply isn't the way that I want them to be, and that makes me angry. I'm frustrated because somehow my sovereignty, which doesn't exist, is not working out like I want it to, and that makes us angry. 
That, that anger is self-seeking and that anger is sinful, but, but something is not right with our priorities, our values, if we never experience righteous, righteous anger as we go through life. So here's the, the simple takeaway. We as Christians need to experience righteous anger more often. You might want to evaluate, right? You, you want to not just any anger you feel must be evil, therefore stop it. And the other side of it is, is fearful and hateful and self-focused anger we want to experience less often. Or not at all would be the goal. And so, well actually, there's another reflection quote. I don't have it in my notes, but I know it's in this thing. Um, that, that kind of gets to that point. John Piper, he says, The right kind of anger is not hot-headed, not impulsive, not screaming range, but careful and thoughtful. Unlike our Lord, when we get angry, we can corrupt it. We can complicate our anger with selfishness, wounded pride, impatience, lust for revenge, plus a lot more, and without even realizing it. But surely we can all agree on this, our anger can be good. It can be bad, and it can be even mingled good and bad together, and so we must weigh our anger out carefully. And so the next time you find yourself angry, you know, consider what the reasons are. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you for the task of identifying what sort of anger is this I am feeling. And what can I do with this anger that honors the Lord, rightly honors the Lord? Now that's a scary thing to wrestle through. I would highly encourage you in the moment to to bring someone else into it because we are often so blind of our own intentions in the moment. Right? I'm about to go temple on these people. Well, let's see about the right way of going temple. Um, All right, so last passage today. Follow along. Uh, I'm actually going to begin in verse 47. Somehow, it's not my notes. Uh, Verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And then verse 1 and verse 20. Uh, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things, or who is it that uh, that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John the Baptist, or John, from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to him, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's the deal. When when Jesus drives out all the the money changers and and the people selling animals, when when he does that to all these corrupt merchants, he is actually stepping in uh, and he's overthrowing the authority of the leaders in the in, in the temple who supervise the temple, right? You can imagine, if I go down to K-State in the Union and I start kicking out Chick-fil-A and Hall Call Hall and all these people, some people are going to be like, well, who said you could do that? There, there's this issue of authority that, that's happening there. Uh, and such that what we're seeing here is Jesus assumes authority superior to the leaders in the temple, and, and that's what everyone's saying. And so then Jesus comes to the temple, and he's coming day by day, and he's preaching, right? He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching the good news. He's telling them, this, this is how you're right with God, that your salvation is through faith and uh, through union with himself, with Christ. 
And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they, they see their authority and their power weakening and they're terrified and they're furious. And so they want to say, how do we discredit him? How do we show that he has no authority, has no right to do this? How do we stop him? Now, when, when most rabbis, most teachers taught, they would say something and then they would reference whoever taught them that in the past. Some, some historical rabbi who's usually no longer alive uh, as their authority. But when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching with his own authority. He's teaching with the authority that he's received from the Father. Uh, and, and so they're asking this question, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And, and Jesus just volleys a question right back at them. Uh, he asked them, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Uh, in other words, it was John just making stuff up, just some crazy man out in the wilderness? Or is he an obedient servant of the Lord, a true prophet who spoke truth? And, and like many modern-day politicians, they, instead of answering truthfully, they go and they analyze the question and, and, and they want to know, like, so what's the public fallout? If we say this, what happens? If we say that, what happens? What's our, our, our like, public you know, ratings going to be? approval rating is going to be, uh, and, and they conclude that we're just going to give nothing. None of these things actually project well for us either direction, and so uh, there's nothing good, and, and so they say they're not going to do anything, and the reason is because if they do affirm that John the Baptist is, is truly a prophet from God and speaks the truth, then, then they know that John the Baptist's witness uh, confirmed, said that Jesus is the Messiah, so if that's why don't they believe what he said if indeed he's from God? And on the other hand, if they reject it, they've just de- determined these people are going to go nuts and kill us. And, and that's not going to go well. Um, and, and so they do that politician thing. They refuse to answer the question. And, and Jesus says, okay, so I won't answer you either. And, and it's, you know, um, that's how it goes. Now, we know the answer that, to Jesus' question. John 1.6 tells us uh, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and that's about John the Baptist. Uh, but, but what about the Pharisees' questions here? Because the, the question that they, they asked Jesus at the heart, the question many people ask about Jesus today is, is, is what, what gives Jesus the right? Right? We word it in a thousand different ways, but we want to know this. What, what gives Jesus the right to tell me how I should handle my money? What, what gives Jesus the right to determine what is morally right and wrong in our culture? What, what gives Jesus the right to demand that, that we worship him, that we trust in him? Or, you know, to tell me that that's the only way to eternal life? What gives him the right to say any of that stuff? And, and the answer to the Pharisees' question and, and the modern version of the same question today is this. God does. Jesus has the authority to do these things because he's God. One with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is God. He created you, and as creator, he has supreme authority over everything, including every single one of us. And he calls sinners to come to faith in him. And we will either like the people of Jerusalem, rebel, reject, deny, refuse, claim we don't understand in some regard, or, or we will come to him and receive the gracious gift of the forgiveness of faith. You see, our, our hope for ourselves and for all those who we know and we love, even those who we don't love, is clearly the latter there, that they come to Christ and find salvation. May we come to the Lord and find grace and forgiveness and eternal salvation. That's what we desire here. 
So there's no smooth way of ending this today. I mean, anytime you take three things that are actually going in a little bit of different direction, there's no smooth way. Um, but I, I do want to say this. We, we have started these small groups. We post these questions on, online as well in case you can't make it to one. But, but there are follow-up questions that go deeper into this, and I highly encourage you to do that. Right? We don't want to just come hear the word preached and then be done. Like, that's it. It has nothing to do with my life. We want to see uh, the word be fruitful in our life. And one of the best ways we can do that is to go deeper with these, these questions. So uh, if you can make it to a small group, I highly encourage you to do that where you're going to discuss these questions. Uh, if, if not, at least get them out and discuss them with someone. Uh, they'll be on our website probably within the hour, uh, and you can have that discussion even over lunch. Uh, let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, give us hearts that so love your glory that anything that works against it would make us angry. Lord, teach us how to respond in a way that's honoring to you when we are angry. We, we don't know how to do righteous anger much because we don't do righteous anger much, but teach us, Lord, to do so. The Holy Spirit, give us discernment to know the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. And Father, teach us to, to look on sinners like our Lord does, not with contempt. Help us to look past that so that we might have compassion on them, that we see them as someone in need, not someone in need of our condemnation. Uh, we pray this in, in the name of our Savior, who is holy, Jesus. Amen.